just would like to say again, thank you all so much for this past Sunday. Um, for those of you who weren't here, just want to let you know how thankful my wife and I are for thinking about this call here. And uh, we really are. We're so thrilled to serve y'all, to minister the word to you. And uh, we, we really are. We're so excited. So if we have not met you, uh, my wife's not here this week. So uh, if I have not met you, I would love to meet you. Please come meet me afterward. And uh, with that in mind, let me invite you, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We're coming towards the end of our sermon series in asking the question, who is Jesus, as we've had an overview of the book of Matthew. It is very relevant when we think about the reading of scripture, our Westminster Larger Catechism. It says this, how is the word of God to be read? Listen to this answer that they wrote down some 400 years ago. The holy scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the word of God, and that he only can enable us to understand them. They're also to be read with a desire to know, to believe, and to obey the will of God revealed in them. They're to be read with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. It certainly changes the way we read Scripture. Reading it not just like any other book, but reading it like it is God's Word. So brothers and sisters, with that in mind, let us read Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold... There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and, and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money. And did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Our Holy Father, we are asking that we would see by faith the empty tomb. That we would see and know by faith, though not a perfect faith, but nevertheless a faith given to us by the Holy Spirit, that we might see and know that Jesus Christ is not dead. Breathe life into us, Holy Spirit. Give us a knowledge of the life-giving word so that as we read the word, that we would read it as truly the word of God. Help us to know that it is you proclaiming your truth to, to us this morning. And help us to rest knowing that Jesus Christ is enough for us. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Hiro Anada was one of the last Japanese soldiers to stop fighting World War II. He was also one in a long line of warriors dating all the way back to his samurai ancestors. Onada followed the same path as his ancestors and enlisted in the Imperial Japanese Army when he turned 18. And with his training in guerrilla warfare tactics, Onada was sent to the small island of Lubang on December 26, 1944, in order to use his skills to hold off the American and Philippine troops for as long as possible. But on February 28, 1945, American troops landed on the island and the Japanese forces there attempted to fight them, but they were quickly defeated. Seeing their impending defeat, Onada located three fellow soldiers and he ordered them into the woods with him to engage in guerrilla warfare. The U.S. made several efforts to make sure the news of Japan's surrender had reached these men, including airdropping uh, leaflets so they could know the war was over. Onada and his men first came across one of these leaflets announcing the end of the war and the surrender of Japan in October 1945. However, he quickly dismissed the document as propaganda. By 19, oh, excuse me, uh, uh, he and his men continued their campaign of terror on the countryside, eluding Philippine authorities and guerrillas. By 1949, one of Anata's men had begun to realize that the war was indeed over. He walked away from the rest of his unit and lived by himself for six months before he surrendered to the Philippine army in March 1950. You can't make this up. His surrender let the rest of the world know about these men still on Lubang Island. The U.S. contacted the families of the holdouts. They obtained family photos and letters from their relatives urging them to come home. And they airdropped these messages across the island in 1952. In 1954, Onada lost another one of his men who was shot and killed by a Philippine search party looking for the men. Then in 1972... His last ally was killed by police while two of them were burning a village's rice silo. 
Finally, on March 9th, 1974, at the age of 52, and after 29 years of fighting, still dressed in his official uniform, still with his service rifle and sword, still in excellent shape, he finally accepted the order from his higher commander, and he surrendered. You cannot make that up. His fighting made no sense because the reality was different. This church in Stillwater and all gospel-believing churches in Stillwater and beyond, they make no sense if Jesus Christ is dead. They make no sense. They're fighting for nothing. They're doing nothing with their ethics. They're doing nothing with their preaching. They're doing nothing with their ministries or mercies if Jesus is dead. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. There is literally no more important truth in the world than this in Matthew 28. Is Jesus Christ alive? Is he reigning at the right hand of the Father? And why is this good news, my friends? Look at verses 1 through 4. Let's look at the resurrection here. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. By the way, does that not remind you of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7? And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. You see here that there is this great earthquake. When it uses this word in verse 2, even before that, where it says, and behold... That word for behold is always a word that is used to draw your attention to something surprising that's going to follow it. We had seen that word before, but it's always helpful in your Bible reading that whenever you see the word behold, get ready to behold. Here is this earthquake. Why is this earthquake a big deal? Actually, this earthquake is not merely just some natural phenomenon, but rather it has theological truth to it. Because earthquakes in Scripture always take place in the New Testament during divine intervention. In other words, when an earthquake happens, God's doing something. We see in Zechariah 14, 4 through 5, talking about uh, describing the victory of God, talking about an earthquake. And really what we see here is that something massive has happened at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's angels and there's guards. You see actually uh, here really these three parties, the angels, the guards, and the women. The angel descends from heaven to earth, rolling back the stone. Do you notice the eyewitness detail here? Do you notice the detail here of someone who had to have been there? They don't just give like, here's what this truth is, here's what it means. Jesus has risen, boom. They give detail, my friends. It's not a matter of if this happens, it's a matter of how we respond to it. The angel, it says he rolled back the stone and he sat on it. That sounds weird. Why would you sit on it? 
See, actually sitting, just like when it says that Jesus has risen to the right hand of the Father and he sat down on the throne, sitting is a posture of victory. When the angel sits down, he is declaring the victory of Jesus Christ over sin, Satan, and death. It's interesting that these guards, who literally are the men who would be the least fearful in all that land, and they just tremble in their boots, as it were. The guys who should be the most brave, who have seen action, who know what scary stuff is like, and they are the most fearful person here. The guards are afraid and they tremble. They fall down like dead men. But then you see the angel, look at verse 5, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I love this. See, when the women are told, do not be afraid, we need to remember this. That the gospel will scare the strongest, but it will also encourage the weakest. The gospel will afflict those of you who are too comfortable in your sin. But those of you who know your sin and are afflicted, the gospel will comfort you. See, this resurrection is another miracle of Jesus, the miracle of Jesus, as it were. And we need to remember what miracles are for what purpose are they? Certainly, this one has so, so many, as it were, uh, purposes to it. But remembering that a miracle is God's endorsement that this person's message is true. Jesus was not the only one to do miracles. We saw prophets in the Old Testament do miracles, including Elijah and Elisha. Uh, we saw Moses do miracles, but they were not God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He declared himself to be God in the flesh. And so when this miracle happens, it is God on high saying that everything Jesus Christ has said, it's true. Everything he's done is true. Every promise he extends is true. That's what the resurrection is declaring. And actually, when we think about the resurrection, we do need to be reminded of God's law. Because we actually saw way earlier in the sermon series, in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6, chapter 7, Jesus teaching, preaching about God's law. How deep the law actually goes. So actually, my friends, the gospel does afflict us in this way because it reminds us that since Jesus has risen from the dead, that God's law is true. If you ignore God's law, if you try to change God's law or water down God's law, it still remains true. Not one dot, not one iota, nothing changes God's law. The standard of getting into heaven stays the same. The resurrection proves that. And it means that you and I cannot do it by our own works. But the resurrection also means this, that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. Amen. Come on now. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. And because of him... We can be saved. I do love telling this to RUF students. We are saved by works. 
that sounds heretical until you understand it this way. Not our works, but the works of Jesus Christ. It is his righteousness, him fulfilling the law that is given to us. That's how we are saved. And it is all by grace and by mercy. That's what the resurrection tells us. My friends, this is good news. It's good news when we see the stone rolled back, when we see the tomb empty, when we hear the angel in verse 6 saying, he is not here. It means he's got to be somewhere, but he ain't here. For he has risen. As he said, isn't that so interesting? How many times that he told them, hey, I'm going to rise again. Hey, by the way, I'm going to rise again. But we would do the same thing. We wouldn't believe him. But nevertheless, the angel says, look, come and see. Notice that Christianity is not this. Ooh, uh, we don't really want you to go look at that tomb. Go see this other one that has never been used before. Oh, there's no one there. No, no, no. If anyone at that time, do you want to come see that tomb that was guarded, that everyone in the land knew, here's where he is. We invite you to come and see it because there's no one there. I do have a document back there on the little round table as you walk out the door on some of the theories that we hear about today that actually in a very uh, summarized way, it defeats some of those theories. But I will warn you, you need to have reading glasses because the font's very small because I try to make it one page. But I did find it helpful. One person, Beryl Markham, has said this about death. That's what makes death so hard, unsatisfied curiosity. But my friends, we don't have to have unsatisfied curiosity anymore because now we know what death is for. For the Christian, death is not the end, death is the beginning. Praise God. Come on now. Eddie, you got me going now. My friends, death is no longer gloom and doom, but death is a doorway into eternal joy. My friends, maybe you're starting to feel your body breaking down, your mind slowing, your memory fading. You're seeing the, the death of friends and family members. My friends, it is hard. And some of you know that far more than me. But my friends, what you need to remember is that for all those who believe upon Jesus Christ, God is on the other side of death waiting. And he's waiting for you. We need to remember death. Because this is not ultimately our home. We're going somewhere. Matter of fact, eventually home will invade this place. But we need to remember that this is not the only life. But that rather one day we will go through the veil to be with the Lord. If you are a Christian, as you are dying on this earth, it is as if, it is as if you are coming more alive in heaven. What makes this good news? What makes it good news again is that everything that Jesus says is true. The identity that you can have in him. The promises that he gives you, the forgiveness that he extends, the mission in this life, heaven to come, that everything he says is true. Here is what we don't need. We do not need another book or another movie about heaven being for real. We just need the empty tomb. Jesus Christ is enough. He shows us that heaven is for real. 
Jesus and his word is the final declaration that everything he has said is true. Satan has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. That when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he came to this earth declaring war. But he rose in victory. Jesus' sacrifice is what reverses the curse of sin. It is what defeated Satan. It is what restores creation to a right relationship with God. And though we do not see everything perfect in this life, but yet, one day we will. It's what we call the already, but not yet. When you come in union with Jesus Christ, that's what happens when you become a Christian. When you come in union with Jesus Christ, the penalty of sin removed. The power of sin over you removed. But the presence of sin, it still lingers in your life. But just because the presence of sin is still there, do not have a defeatist mindset as if Jesus is dead. Yes, you will battle. Yes, you will fight, and you will have to. But my friends, the reality of the resurrection shows us that Jesus Christ has won and will win. Amen? We see in Romans 6 verse 4, Paul says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How long have you been battling the sin that you swore years ago that you would, Lord, I promise you, I'll stop doing this. <laughs> and you're still struggling with it. My friends, look to Jesus Christ in the empty tomb because he is still at work in your life. There is no sin stronger than him. There is nothing that is so ingrained in you, no desire that is so lingering there, that is somehow something that he cannot work on. And you might not see it the way you want to see it. But God is always at work. Do not change his definition of sanctification or what he is doing based on your experience. But rather let his word interpret your experience. He is at work. And when you feel most cast down, most guilty, you look to Jesus Christ and say, I do not see all the experience right now, but I trust that you, the risen Lord, are at work. He will win. He will do it. There's a story about Martin Luther. After traveling for a little bit, he walked into his home, and his whole family was dressed in all black, and they were sad. And he walked in, and he said, well, who's, who's dead? His wife who, by the way, his wife was really witty. She said, well, apparently God's dead. Because based on how you're living, you're living in just constant shame and guilt over your own sin. Clearly God must be dead. Luther struggled very much with that. And this German word that I know people make fun of me for, some people are already laughing, is anfechtung. This pummeling, shame and guilt over sin that is committed and you just wallow in it and it feels as if you can never do enough to let it go away. Luther often struggled with that and this was a very key moment in his life where his wife was showing him, you're acting as if God is dead. 
My friends, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That means in Christ all your sins are forgiven. Look to the empty tomb to determine your reality, not your own experience. Some of us say, well, I'm never going to see progress in this area of my life. Not so if Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Some of you are still wallowing in your own guilt and shame of past sins, and you think, I've confessed this so many times, but I still feel guilty. But my friends, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Your feelings and your emotions, yes, they matter, but you must speak back to them. Some of you might be hopeless and anxious when you think about the future and thinking about what's happening in our world today. But my friends, Jesus Christ is risen. Nothing's going to stop his mission. He was serious when he says that the gates of hell will not prevail. This produces great joy. Look at verses 8 through 10. They run back. I don't even, who knows what all the thoughts they were having. And they run back. And on the way back, Jesus met them and he said, greetings. Now, that might seem like a really weird word to say. <laughs> greetings. Um, actually, this word is a very hospitable word. It's not a harsh word. What do you think our words would have been were we in Jesus' position? We probably would have been like, shame on you for not believing in me. Not Jesus. Jesus greets them with hospitality, with forgiveness. And he tells them yet again, this is one of God's most frequent commands. He tells them, verse 10, do not be afraid. My friends, do not be afraid. Jesus Christ is risen. Don't be afraid of if you are in Christ of him, he's going to just dump punishment upon you whenever you mess up. Or Don't linger in anxiety when you think about, have I done enough to earn his forgiveness? Or you worry about his future wrath. My friends, Jesus Christ is risen. There is no more wrath for him. First John 4 is a great verse, especially verse 18, or great chapter. Verse 18 is a great verse where it talks about how uh, perfect love casts out fear. In other words, perfect love casts out sinful fear. There is a godly fear that is good and appropriate, a, a fear where we hold God in awe and we rejoice and we tremble appropriately, but not a fear that makes us want to go and hide like Adam and Eve in the garden. But rather it is a fear of saying, you really do hold sin in sin. You see it in all of its horrendous nature. And there's so much wrath that sin deserves, and yet at the same time, there is so much forgiveness and mercy and grace. And when I come to Jesus Christ, I know that in Him, that I can have that. My friends, if Jesus has risen from the dead, that means you and I can be restored. Amen? He sends them on mission. Look at verses 11 through 15. While they were going, notice how people are scrambling in this moment here. While they were going, some of the guard went into the city and took, uh, told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They said to them, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. That's actually really funny because... 
If anyone would be awake at that moment, it would be those guys. No one would believe that ridiculous story. They're scrambling, trying to make up something. They says, look, even, even if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and we will keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and they did as they were told. It is interesting that as there is good news being spread, there is also rumors being spread. Here's a question. Why would you need to spread a rumor if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead? What's the point? Why not just tell people, just go to the tomb. Just look there. It's, it's not like we're leaving everything open. Why would you have to spread a rumor? Why would you have to pay people off? Because it must have happened. You see, Satan loves to get us to not believe in the resurrection. Because Satan does not want you to have peace with God. He does not want you to have new life in Christ. He does not want you to have sure confidence that God is at work. And so he will tempt you to doubt. Maybe he isn't risen. Maybe this whole thing was just a bunch of crazy people. But see, here's what's interesting yet again. You see the evidence here. Notice that people saw him. They touched him. Him. They ate with him. You see that in other portions of scripture. They spoke with him. They heard from him. They walked with him. There's a scene in one of the movies of the Pirates of the Caribbean, or however you want to announce that last word. Um, Caribbean, Caribbean. Where some of the bad pirates are eating food or they're drink, I think they're drinking water or something like that. And you can see how it, like, it goes through them and their bodies are open. It just kind of like filters through. When Jesus ate fish, it wasn't as if that, where it just kind of like passed through him. He literally ate, and it went in. He tasted it. He felt the texture of it. It would have digested in his body. And these guys were sitting there watching him saying, "This this guy is really here. My friends, more than 500 people saw this. It is not a matter of if this happened, it's a matter of how we respond to it. You see, it's so obvious that he rose from the dead that here's what Satan is doing behind the scenes, that he's working overtime to prevent people from believing this. But then here is what Jesus does. Look at verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We see yet again, as was mentioned I think two weeks ago, uh, we see again the importance of a mountain. God does great things on mountains. It's where he reveals himself. And it was interesting, back in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan tempted Jesus on a mountain, he showed him the kingdoms of the earth, and he said, look, all these can be yours if you bow down and worship me. But my friends, by Jesus saying no to Satan and saying yes to the Father, 
all those kingdoms are his. And not just those kingdoms, but everything in heaven. When Jesus says all authority on heaven and on earth is his, he means it. We see in Daniel chapter 7 verse 14, this vision of Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father. It says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here is what's amazing, that since Jesus has all this authority, notice that he does this. He does not reinvent God's wheel. He does not change God's plan. He does not say, well, plan A, back in Genesis 1, of God saying, be fruitful and multiply, that clearly didn't work. Let's do things different. Here's what he does. He gives them the same mission. He gives them the exact same mission. He says, go. Matter of fact, literally this is a, this word go in verse 19, and it's translated in the imperative uh, in English, but it is actually a participle. It actually is saying going, going therefore. It is not actually the first command in uh, verse 19 the first command is not go. The first command is actually make. But when it says go or going, Jesus is assuming that his people are always on the move. Going. He is assuming that wherever you go, you are always living on mission. Even if you are stuck at home and maybe watching on the live stream, whatever it is, you are on mission. I used to have a professor, Elias Medeiros, who used to say over and over and over to us, he would talk about going to people across the street and around the world. My friends, you do not have to travel across the globe to do missions. Missions is here. Missions is even within this building right here. It is in this building. It is in these neighborhoods. It is in the university. It is wherever you go. You are always living on mission. Ask yourselves some of these questions. Where are you right now? Where are you right now? Not where do you want to be eventually, but where are you right now? Who are you around right now? The people that God has around you right now are not a mistake. Yes, even those crazy family members that you're going to see in like two weeks. Them, which by the way, you're probably the crazy family member, so I know I am. Who is around you right now? That frustrating neighbor, or maybe the teacher who just never gives you any slack. Who is around you right now? But then also, what opportunities are in front of you right now? God has you, not someone else. He has you right where he wants you with the people around you. Where you are right now, not eventually where you want to be. If I could just get to this position, then I can have such a platform. I remember someone telling me when I was considering going into ministry and stopped playing football, they were saying, but playing professional means you have such a platform. My friends, we often idolize the platform and we can do many things in the name of Jesus. And if we're not careful, then we can think this is great, but Jesus might end up telling us, I never knew you. 
you can do a lot of things in the name of Jesus, but not for the name of Jesus. God has you right where he wants you. If you're a stay-at-home mom or if you're a CEO, if you pick up trash or you're a professor at OSU, if you're a daycare worker or a politician, all vocations are equal in God's eyes, and he sends you where he wants you to minister to those people. Nobody is small. Do not let the world inform you of saying, well, this is more important than this. My friends, God loves to work through the ordinary. And man has an incredible capacity to bring great destruction through the extraordinary. God loves to use the ordinary. The whole Bible is about using people who do not deserve it or who are weak. He's using you. He's telling you, really, Jesus is a southerner here because when he says make disciples, he's saying y'all go make disciples. It's in the plural. He's not calling the elite or the professionals y'all. Y'all counsel people. Y'all speak to people about the gospel. Y'all teach ethics. Y'all sing songs with those children. Y'all, you go. Do you know what the Reformation was all about? The Reformation was all about restoring God's mission and restoring God's church to his people and not the so-called professionals. Yes, we need further studying. Yes, we need people who have spent their life looking at this and that. But my friends, everyone is called to live on mission. Teach the unlearned. Show them how to study God's ways. Demonstrate what it looks like to follow Jesus. Observe how they grow. Give them feedback and continue to help them know what it's like to live in light of grace. That's what Jesus is saying, make disciples. Then he gets here to this next phrase, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptize here is obviously the sign and seal that uh, we witnessed a couple weeks ago. It is the covenant sign and seal that you belong to God's covenant community. Notice this, my friends. If I can be Presbyterian for a moment. This is Grace Presbyterian Church, by the way. Notice that it is a new sign, but Jesus says nothing about changing the recipients. It is a new sign because we don't need the sign of blood anymore because the blood happened on the cross. Now we have the sign of water that cleanses us, that points to the blood of Christ. But the recipients, the children, do not change. The children of at least one believing parent are still the recipients of the sign of baptism. You might say, well, but don't you see this phrase and this order here where it says, make disciples of all nations and then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, if we wanted to use that same logic, then think about this. Do you make disciples of all nations and then baptize them and then teach them? So don't teach them anything. we got to make sure we make them disciples, but you can't teach them anything. I don't know how that's possible. But rather, what this is doing is it's saying, make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? Here's this phrase. Baptize, teach. 
baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus, he's giving them a new sign. And obviously, when they would be going throughout the nations, and remember the nations, the Gentiles, they would not have received the original sign of circumcision. So as it were, they're starting over. So whoever believes is going to be baptized, and then their children would be baptized. I love what one of my professors and good friends, Benjamin Glad, says, God's people are also to be marked by ultimate allegiance to the triune God in baptism. My friends, baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is a serious thing and an incredible thing. You see, Jesus is saying, don't separate the word from the sign. Baptize them, but then also teach them. Teach them to observe some of what I've commanded you, just the parts that make you feel comfortable, right? No, what does it say? Teach them all. Let us be reminded yet again that it takes the entire Bible to make a healthy Christian. Or as Sinclair Ferguson says, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Here's what we see here, is that God is like a tornado. He brings you in and he sends you out. He brings everyone in and whoever he brings in, he sends you out on mission. And because he is the risen Lord, that wherever you go, whoever you are, with whatever weaknesses or sins or struggles or sufferings, whatever you have, the mission does not depend on you. If it did, well, just go ahead and clock out because it's not going to work. But Jesus Christ, through you, even with those sins that you struggle with so much, but when you take those to him, trusting that he's forgiving, he's merciful, he's atoned for you, Go forth in that grace and minister. If this is true, brothers and sisters, if Jesus has risen from the dead, it means you can tell people the truth. Here's what's interesting about Onada that we mentioned earlier at the beginning of the sermon. What would have happened for Onada, because he was continually fighting and killing people even after the war was over? I mean, he, 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 he was a criminal. He had committed war crimes. What would have happened to him when he finally surrendered? Here's what was interesting. When he presented his sword to the president of the Philippines in an act of surrender, he was pardoned. He was pardoned. My friends, some of you are acting like Hiro Anata, and you're fighting against the risen Lord. And because Jesus is risen, he is, you are fighting a war that you cannot win because the war has already been won, but by him. But you're fighting against him. And my friends, if you come to Jesus with no matter what heinous sin you have, in Jesus Christ there is pardon and mercy. And he will use you to build his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We're asking that you would show us your glory more and more in the face of Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, even as you bring great sinners to a great Savior, as we see him, may we be sent forth to live on mission, to proclaim the message of grace, to live in holiness, and to trust that you are with us even to the end of the age. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.